BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, September 9th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. With an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash minds. That's audible.com slash minds. We're in the midst of a huge political season here in the U.S., which has seemingly gone on forever. I feel like I can't even remember a time there wasn't election coverage on the news. And the usual conversations around the economy and national security have come front and center, plus a few unusual ones. But once again, we rarely see much in the way of science conversation, especially science policy conversation, during the season. Just last week, the team at Science Debate released 20 science and science policy questions they'd like to see the candidates answer. I am not holding my breath that either of them will actually answer them, just like in years past. But it brings up an interesting question. Why don't we have more science discussions during the election? Oh, that's such a loaded question. But, you know, yeah, I, I think the answer is that science is perceived as not always coming down on an issue straight up and politicians have to make talking points. And it's often hard to do that if the science hasn't been completely established yet. I agree with you. I share my pessimism that science can ever really enter these conversations. But maybe that's because I'm cynical because I'm too used to the recent trope of the I'm not a scientist that many politicians used. So to talk about how science is used and misused by politicians, this week we have on the show Dave Levitan. He's a science journalist focusing on an array of scientific topics, especially their intersection with policy and politics. He was one of the early folks that was involved with SciCheck, which we did a previous episode on that was fact-checking the science claims of politicians in real time. He's written for a wide variety of outlets, including the forthcoming book, Not a Scientist, How Politicians Mistake, Misrepresent, and Utterly Mangle Science. 
Well, it's not about science, but I just have to make a quick comment that, you know, I've, as you know, Kishore, I've spent the last three months in France on a bit of a sabbatical. And I have to say that listening to the French news cover the U.S. political election is kind of hilarious. They really are very, they want to, they want to be very serious and tell you exactly what's going on. And they are so confused by what's happening in the U.S. Just wanted to lay that out there. You know what? I'm pretty confused, too. <laughs> so I think their <laughs> exasperation is shared by a lot of folks across the world. Uh, so with that, let's take a short break. We'll be back with my interview with Dave Levitan. If you're looking for a dose of good karma, check out Crazy Good Turns, a new podcast that celebrates people who do crazy good turns for others. Each episode tells a vivid, moving story about someone who stretched the boundaries of human kindness to help people in need. This week's episode focuses on Daryl Hammond, founder of Kaboom, which builds playgrounds in underserved and underprivileged communities. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. It gave me a different perspective on the sense of purpose, that it was more than about the playground we were building. It was about the process by how we were building it that could really help heal communities if we could get them to invest in themselves. When we plant some of these trees or a playground and then return 15 years later and to be able to sit under it because it's providing shade to the playground, that's the type of real impact that we can have here. Check it out at crazygoodturns.org slash minds or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes or any other podcasting app. And today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and so much more. Audible is where I get all of my audiobooks and listen to all of my science books, including past guest Ed Yong's I Contain Multitudes. You've never lived until you've heard two hours of microbes described in exquisite detail. For a free audiobook with a 30-day trial, go to audible.com slash minds. That's audible.com slash minds. Dave Levitan, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. So you're not a scientist, but you've spent <laughs> countless hours digging through the various science statements from politicians, both recent and from the past, to unearth how they distort and misrepresent the science. But we should probably start at the origin of that now, sadly, iconic phrase, I'm not a scientist. Yeah, so that the first example of that that I found actually goes all the way back to Ronald Reagan in 1980. And I, I should say, I, I can't promise no one used it before that, but that was certainly seemed to be the sort of modern version of it. Uh, he was talking about uh, sulfur dioxide emissions, and he compared it to emissions from Mount St. Helens, which had erupted in dramatic fashion just a little while before that. Uh, and he he said, you know, I'm not a scientist, but, which is sort of the way politicians tend to use this, they then say a scientific thing that often turns out to be wrong. And Reagan was indeed wrong about human emissions of sulfur dioxide, which uh, are important for, you know, for formation of acid rain which his administration then spent years trying to stave off regulation. So this wasn't without uh, sort of impact even even back then. Uh, it, it took a few decades then for this, the phrase, I'm not a scientist, to, to rear its head again. But when it did, it, it became a thing that, you know, a ton of politicians were using 
as a way of, you know, getting around talking about global warming in, in the mostly around 2009, 10, that sort of period. You lay out a number of strategies that these politicians use to distort the science. But one thing you note before we, we even dive into how they do it is that you say it's really hard to ascribe intent. Some of these feel very intentional and some of them don't. Can you descri- uh, describe why it's so difficult to ascribe intent to this? Well, I, I think that there, there's probably a lot of temptation to ascribe intent anytime a politician gets science wrong, just because there's there's so much sort of obvious, uh, there are obvious reasons why they might, you know, things like the influence of oil companies, say, or back in the day, the influence of tobacco companies. And But when if we're just trying to describe the techniques of how they get these things wrong, it's very hard to say, well, you meant to lie about this, you know, without, and they'll just say, well, no, I didn't. <laughs> so how are you actually going to, you know, adjudicate that fairly, I guess. And as you say, there are some of these techniques which you can't do without meaning to, but others you could theoretically just not understand. And, and that's, I mean, you know, it would be nice if they just listened to the experts, but sometimes people get science wrong and, and there's no malicious intent behind it. So I, I tried to be careful on, on discussing only the ones that it's really, really hard to say that, you know, you could have done it by accident. There are only a few of those, but they, they certainly exist. Well, let's start with one where it was definitely not an accident. And that's probably the most memorable one from the last few years that I remember, which is when Senator James Inhofe brought a snowball to the Senate floor. Yeah, so th- th- I mean, this is just so egregious. I agree. It's, it's you, I mean, well, especially given Inhofe's history with this issue, it's of course you can ascribe intent here. But yeah, so he he brought a snowball to the Senate floor on a, a snowy day in in February, I think it was, uh, just as a way of saying, look, it's snowing, therefore global warming doesn't exist. And of course, like I said, he has a long history of this. He's written a book claiming that global warming is a hoax. I mean, it. it he's sort of the uh, denier in chief, I guess. So his point here was that because it's snowing, therefore there's no global warming, which is a very clear example of of cherry picking data. So that's probably the most recognizable of the techniques I talk about is the cherry pick. This version of it uses a single, single data point. So it's snowing today. That's the only data point he's using, or there's snow on the ground today. And somehow he equates snow on the ground today with it can't possibly be warming up the planet. We can't be warming up the planet. And that, I mean, it's it barely needs debunking just because, I mean, there's there's no scientist has ever said that global warming means it won't ever snow again. That, and that's essentially what he's saying. And, you know, that you can go into some more detail there. You know, obviously there are uh, there's science saying that it actually might snow more in a lot of places because the air can hold more moisture uh, and you know, the, even though it might warm up and some of those days might turn to rain instead of snow, there, there's plenty of snowy days in the world. And I think most people understand this by now. It was it was a very, very egregious version of this. Now, there are much more subtle versions that you pick up on, too, like how Ted Cruz has approached describing certain data. And he says it even with a smile on his face as he compliments NASA as well. Yeah. So th- that one. um that's an error I've termed the butter up and undercut. It's when you're, you're 
praising something that is very hard to, to, you know, rail against because it's popular. NASA is generally very popular. People like NASA. Uh, so it's hard to just criticize it, except Ted Cruz, uh, as a senator, has tried to cut funding for NASA's Earth Observing um, Program, which basically means he doesn't want NASA studying climate change. So his method of, of, of doing this is you know, he'll sit in a Senate hearing and he'll talk for minutes about how great NASA is and how it's inspiring the kids who want to go into science and people looking up at the stars and all this sort of traditional grandiose language related to space travel. But then he'll then he'll argue that we should be looking only up and not down, basically. And and, and you know, he'll pick on on individual projects or he'll pick on, you know, the, the use of money to to measure certain uh, Earth-related things rather than space-related things. And, of course, that's ridiculous. NASA has been observing Earth since its earliest days. It's even in the founding documents of NASA that the purpose is not just to go to the moon. The purpose is to learn more about our own planet. On some level, cherry-picking the data and this uh, buttering up and undercut, as you term it, can have subtlety to it. And in Hoff's case, there wasn't much subtlety to it. But there are much more aggressive techniques that you highlight. And I think the one that comes to mind is the ridicule, ridicule and dismiss. Yeah, so this one, it's it's related to um, a lot of um, generally Republican politicians over the years have come up with um, different ways to, to try and highlight government spending waste. Uh, so Tom Coburn had the waste book for a few years where he would I just... I made it into the waste book one year. Did you really? How did yeah. you manage that? <laughs> I, I worked on an NSF grant that got up to like 87 on the waste list. Okay, well, congratulations. That's a, a badge of honor, I would say. Yeah, I'm actually a little bit disappointed I wasn't higher on the list. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah, so the, the things like the Waste Book, and it even goes back farther than that, uh, the um, Golden Fleece Awards are from the, the 70s. William Proxmire, I think, was the uh, politician responsible. Same idea, though, basically highlighting uh, what, what sound like ridiculous wastes of government money. Uh, but it's only when you phrase them in certain ways. So um, Rand Paul in, uh, is one example, used the ridicule and dismiss uh, in describing some research in, that used fruit flies. Now, the way he said it did sound ridiculous. Uh, the, the line is something like uh, about, you know, fruit flies and whether they, the male fruit flies prefer younger female fruit flies. And he gets a laugh from his audience every time he says this. And you could just pull the audience because, of course, they prefer younger fruit flies, as if this makes no sense at all to spend money on. But, of course, fruit fly research isn't just about fruit flies. <laughs> We're not just trying to figure out fruit flies. We're trying to figure out things about people. And any any scientist will know that, which makes it even more egregious because Rand Paul is a doctor and he, I'm sure, on some level knows that too. Uh, the, the specific research he was talking about um, had to do with healthy aging and how uh, sexuality um, can play into how we age, which is, when you put it that way, quite a bit different. It's, it's only when you phrase these things in certain ways that they start to sound ridiculous. And it's it's a way to get people to, you know, not want the government to spend money. The effect, though, is that people don't understand the importance of basic science research. And whose responsibility is it that most people don't understand the value of basic science research? Like, is it really the politician's job to ensure people understand that? 
or is it a failure of the scientific community? Because a lot of the examples you cite, there's some turns of phrases, there's some dismissal, but they it goes the heart of it is that the people they're talking to don't know much about uh, what it is that they're being talked to about. Right. And I mean, it's a, that's a very good question. I mean, who's, who is in charge of making sure the public understands this stuff? I, I mean, people have, have had a lot of discussions over the years of, of whether scientists and the scientific community and science writers, such as myself, <laughs> have like more of a responsibility to get some of these messages out. The problem is that politicians, I mean, I, I would say they do have a lot of responsibility because they're the ones, you know, legislating and, and governing where money goes and, and what science actually can get done. And if they're just totally misrepresenting the truth, then, they, I mean, they have very large platforms, right? I mean, it's a scientist can't just, like some random scientist can't just decide he's going to give a speech and everyone will watch, right? So, you know, if you're, if you're someone who can get people to watch, then I think your responsibility to properly convey the issues is a little bit greater. I mean, I, I don't want to say that scientists shouldn't be better at communicating. I'm sure everybody can improve at that. But even even the best communicators don't have the platform that, that prominent politicians do. I want to talk a, a little bit about some of the subtler techniques that uh, are employed, because when it comes to modern science, we oftentimes deal in probabilities. We don't give definitive answers in a way that uh, a lot of times the general public wants. We have to say it's more likely to X instead of it's a it's 100% going to be X. And there's an arena you call the certain uncertainty, uh, which I think points to how politicians have used that bit of uncertainty and probability against science itself. Yeah, that 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 one is um, again. This is one I actually find it sort of a little easier to ascribe intent because you really have to mean what you're saying, where you you have to mean to do this sort of. Uh, the most sort of common version of this is with again with climate change. So when a scientist or sorry, when a politician says something like, uh, you know, we don't the science isn't settled or we don't know enough about this or so maybe some more detailed version of that related to specific. Um, climate change related research, what they're saying is, you know, if we don't know everything, we shouldn't act. And that, of course, is ridiculous because, you know, in any scientific field, there's always uncertainty. Uncertainty is inherent to every every possible field of science. And, you know, it, it's it's purely a political ploy to say only only when we know everything should we act. And what really sort of bothers me about this one is that they really pick and choose when to use this. So they say it about global warming a lot. We don't know everything, therefore we shouldn't do anything. But then on certain other topics, they say the exact opposite thing. Things like um, Chris Christie calling marijuana a gateway drug definitively, as if we have suddenly done some research and science says it's a gateway drug, when actually science is a bit confused about that. Or uh, another very controversial one, the issue of, of when during gestation a fetus can feel pain. And of course, that's used as, as part of the argument for certain uh, restrictive abortion laws. Again, that is not something science has settled. But people will say that that question has been answered as if it was done. And then on other things, they'll say we don't know anything. So it's very sort of pick and choose where you decide the science is settled. 
You know, as a scientist, I found those two examples both really compelling because it's hard, even when you're a professional generally in the field, to ascribe where consensus is. And having like a number of studies laid out for you, what you do in the book actually did really help somebody who is scientifically literate, but not necessarily an expert in that field, ascertain that. But it points to, I think, a, a really bigger issue in a sense that there are places that the science isn't settled um, at all and that the politicians are representing it correctly. But oftentimes we don't hear that come up in conversation. Is that right? Sure. I, I mean, well, I, I guess that's a little tough because, you know, as I was saying, the science is never settled, I guess. <laughs> that it, it's almost like a bad turn of phrase to use regardless, right? I mean, even with something like climate change, which is now just universally agreed, it's happening now, it's bad, we should do something very drastic to try and stop it. That doesn't mean that there aren't open questions. Uh, and if, if politicians were a little more careful about how they talked about this, then I think, you know, that might really help the public understand it a little better. I mean, as you said, we don't really hear that sort of nuance. But if, if you know, someone said, we clearly need to do something about climate change, um, you know, the exact number of degrees that we should be aiming to keep it to is still a little bit tough. You know, uh, things like that would, would actually, I think, I mean, it's complicated, but I think it would help. I think it would help if, Politicians were willing to address some of the actual uncertainty without hiding behind sort of the fake uncertainty. We should address the elephant in the room, literally, because almost everyone you highlight in this book happens to be a Republican politician. And I think you address it up front. And I will just note that this podcast used to be hosted by Chris Mooney, who literally wrote the book, The Republican <laughs> War on Science. Which I which I note, I think, in the introduction. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So I just want to, uh, you know, have you uh, give you a chance to talk about why is it that there's so many Republicans in this book that it's like over 90 percent of the examples here refer to Republican politicians? Right. So. I, I should say the book is not intended to be a, a partisan book. I mean, it's, it, it, as you say, it certainly focuses on Republicans. That, that is not on purpose. If there were more Democrats getting science wrong, I would include them. It's just that over the past few decades, as Chris Mooney has, and others have, have chronicled, one party has sort of abandoned mainstream science and, and they are sort of unapologetic about it in some ways. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's, it, it is difficult to try and write in a nonpartisan fashion when almost everyone you're talking about is of one party. And, you know, the people on the cover of the book are all Republicans. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there, there's sort of nothing I can do about that. There, I mean, Obama does appear in the book a few times. I will say his errors are much more subtle. They're a matter of sort of very nitpicky, almost nuance. And the reason I highlight them is not because you know, he's he's doing something so terrible. It's just that he's opening himself up to attack from those other people who are so eager to get science wrong. Uh, if you're a little more precise, then there's fewer things to attack. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't have I, I don't have like a great explanation for it. I think a lot of people have written already about why that party has gone that way. But I, I will just say, you know, it, it's not 
it's not intentional. I'm not trying to pick on one party. And, you know, in the future, that could flip. I mean, there are some issues that Democrats are are not great about. GMOs is one that a lot of Democrats tend to get wrong. Um, you know, some of the vaccine denial uh, tend to be in more liberal pockets of the country. Um, politicians haven't really been, you know, true villains in that regard. But uh, it, there there is some crossover. But, yeah, it, it's it's true. There is a whole lot more uh, fodder, I guess, for this sort of book uh, from one party than the other. And I, 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 I don't, I'm not going to, you know, I can't say that I'm sorry that that's the case. It's just that that's the, that's the way it is right now. We have to talk about the current election cycle, which I think thankfully is coming to an end in the next couple months because it feels like it's gone on forever. We should talk about the role science has played in it. This seems to be a stranger election cycle with, Trump and Clinton than in previous years. Uh, what role have we seen um, uh, science play in this cycle, especially in the context of utilization of these different techniques to uh, distort it? Yeah, so honestly, science has sort of, in a lot of ways, dropped off the radar in this election just because, well, because Trump has said so many crazy things. Science is just way, way down the list of of relevant issues you know when when he's when he's talking about you know using more nukes on countries i mean it sort of it sort of makes you know what the funding level for nih is doesn't really sound as important <laughs> and uh so i mean it's it's it depresses me in a lot of ways that it means that even on the democratic side uh science is just less discussed i mean yeah uh clinton definitely talks about how important um, fighting climate change is and a, a few other issues, but it just it just so rarely comes up given given the general level of discourse. Uh, so yeah, it's it's certainly been a little bit different um, in in just like you know four years ago there was a um, a move toward getting the, the candidates to just talk a lot more about science and have actual meaningful debates about it, but it, it just hasn't been, you know, high enough on the list of issues this year. Yeah, that group I think you're referring to is Science Debate, which yes. really put this idea on the map of having the candidates respond to a set of questions around uh, uh, all focused on science within either an independent debate or just get responses from the candidates themselves. Uh, and they've already released their set of questions for this year. Do you see any of these questions being meaningfully addressed between now and Election Day, given how things are going? And do you think that's even important, given what's going on? Well, I'll start by saying, yes, I think it's important. Um, it, it's because there are very important questions, uh, you know, things that are have sort of I don't even think this is hyperbole, sort of existential importance. Uh, so, yeah, I, I absolutely think they're important. Uh, they're important issues, and it's important to understand where these candidates stand on those issues. However, I don't think <laughs> that they are going to be meaningfully addressed. Again, Clinton certainly has talked about some of these things and may talk about them again. But I mean, when Trump addresses scientific issues, it's it's hard to even you know pick out which of the techniques that I that I describe in the book that he's using because he's basically just making things up. So I guess it's the last one. It's the straight up fabrication that he basically makes up everything he says when it comes to science. 
there's very little subtlety in it. It's just, this is a hoax. That's fake. Everything's fake. Science doesn't exist. So, I mean, when that's your level of discourse, I don't think there are really like meaningful conversations to be had. Well, thankfully, there are other candidates out there in terms of down ballot races and certainly a number of referendum and uh, initiatives on state ballots that probably touch upon these issues in a more serious way, certainly around energy uh, production and usage. Uh, and then we always have some sort of annual discussion about the NASA budget in some way. So these issues aren't going away. Uh, it's just that it seems that we're in a weird cycle with this election, given the two major candidates. I wanted to transition to what you think just the average voter listener should really think about how science is portrayed by these politicians. Like In one way, after reading your book, I felt even more cynical than I do about the political process. But I don't think that's what you're trying to get across. Uh, no, although I certainly don't blame you for having that reaction. Um, I mean, as, as, as I was writing it, I, I certainly felt that way sometimes myself. There, there's, there just seems to be so much sort of uh, such an easy banter of misinformation that a lot of these politicians tend to use. Uh, in terms of what voters should think about or what they should, should know, I mean, I, I guess the simple answer is is to have a healthy degree of skepticism when politicians talk about science. And, you know, there are certain key words, some of which we've already touched on, that I think are really important to listen for. If you're listening to a politician uh, talk about uh, about a scientific topic, if they say something isn't settled, then they probably have an agenda. There's probably a reason that they're saying it isn't settled. And, and it's worth looking into whether or not, you know, they have a point there at all. Uh, if they if they're making fun of basic research for some reason or other, they're I mean that I, I feel like you can just think that they're probably wrong because basic research often sounds ridiculous uh, if you just say it quickly. Um, so that's another one to think about. If one thing that I found too, if you hear someone say uh, a report just came out or you know there was a study or something, I, I would look for the study or the report because oftentimes. Um, Politicians aren't really talking about actual science there. Uh, this goes into one of the, the, the techniques I talk about, the blame the blogger, where if it's online, it must be true. Uh, so if, if they say a report just came out, it's worth thinking about where the report's from or if it's even a report at all. Sometimes a report means someone's blog post. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I know it's tough to have to, as a voter, think you have to check every single statement that you hear. So that's why I think just generally being a bit skeptical is useful. And if there's an issue that you're particularly interested in, say energy production in your state or, uh, you know, or the use of vaccines or something, then it's worth, if you hear a politician say something, it's worth checking on the things that you care about uh, and trying to find the source rather than just trusting them, I think. Has it always been this way, especially in U.S. politics? Are we in a different realm of time right now? I think we are in, in sort of a different realm. I, I think the there used to be a little bit more probably reverence for scientists. And, you know, we could probably argue about whether that was good or bad at various points in time. But politicians, I don't think I don't think they always felt so comfortable just saying something scientific uh, without actually knowing it. You know, I, I and this is more a feeling than than um, 
really thorough research. Other people have written about the history of, of science and uh, especially in the political realm before. But I do think that the, the polarization that we're experiencing extends into science. So, you know, it, it's easier for politicians when uh, their audiences seem so polarized to uh, sort of not trust actual scientific consensus or scientific experts, really. So I, I do think it's 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 different than it's been. And uh, I've heard, I, I talked to a couple of the, the people in that science debate group um, for the book, and one of them, uh, I think it was Sean Otto, who said that as, as far as he knows, this is sort of the worst science has ever been treated by politicians since at least sort of the 19-teens or 20s. Uh, and I, I think he's probably right. And just personally, as a science writer, and you've worked at, you know, SciCheck, you know, trying to keep politicians honest about the science statements they make, how do you want it to be? What's realistic, given that science is only a, a one input into the larger political discussion? Uh, but how could it look and how should it look? That's a great question. And I, I'm not going to claim to have, like, you know, the answer to that. Uh, I mean, I'm, I guess what I would like is that politicians, that it became normalized for politicians to just listen to scientists a little more. Um, they don't seem to care right now if what they're saying about science is backed up by actual people doing the science. And so it's a very simple ask in a way, just like, you know, you let the scientific consensus be your talking point. And I don't think that's so outrageous. Although, I mean, look, as long as there are you know, political agendas, someone is going to misuse science. I, I don't pretend that we could suddenly just stop doing that. There's always going to be, you know, business interests and other things, as you said, other inputs that go into this discussion. So, but, but I don't know, I, I guess I, I, I do wish though, that we could just, that it wasn't so controversial to say, this is what the majority of scientists say. Therefore, let's go with that. Let's, and, and yes, of course, there's uncertainty. There's always uncertainty. There's always, you know, differing opinions. There always might be people dissenting from that consensus, but at least that's like a good starting point, you know? And I, I, I think, I'm not sure that's reasonable right now, but maybe in the future it is. <laughs> well, it's not an unreasonable thing, especially for this show, to report on what scientists think and believe in an unfiltered way. So it, on that optimistic note, uh, Dave Levitan, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thanks a lot for having me. So I thought it was really interesting how you can point to so many different situations in which a politician says, I'm not a scientist, but, and then, you know, does something egregious like cherry pick some data or, you know, make a kind of factual claim that we know isn't based in science. And so after that conversation, what do you think that comes from? I mean, is it a way of of making science seem like it doesn't have all the answers and this lowly politician does is a kind of a humble brag. Where is it really coming from? I walked away with a, a couple thoughts. I think we're used to, at least in the U.S., the U.S. Uh, the US media and especially the science communication media portraying politicians as being dumb about science, particularly ones that have anti-science or negative attitudes towards science. And the way I interpreted what Dave 
wrote and said is that politicians are much smarter than we're giving them credit for around science, and they're abusing science and the uncertainty that's existent in science to great effect. Uh, Not all, but a lot of them. And that sort of looking at it through the lens of that they have strategy at play here, uh, and what we need is the people translating their message out to the broader public need to be more sophisticated in their analysis uh, is what I sort of walked away with as the as the key message here. So I don't think politicians are, for the most part, are really misusing science because they don't believe in science. I think they have agendas behind the scene that they're trying to achieve. And the chief among them that really sticks out to me is is Ted Cruz. NASA exists in his in his home state that he represents in the Senate. But he ran and was elected on reducing the size of the federal government, which includes the you know seventeen billion dollar NASA budget. So while he might say nice things to them publicly, behind the scenes, his real ideology is to cut funding that the government spends. So I'm not surprised he's using this sort of butter up move. Yeah, I feel like it has this interesting two-sided nature to it. Like on the one hand, you're saying, well, I'm not a scientist, but it's the scientists that have all the answers. So, you know, in some way that puts science up as a as a kind of authoritative source, because, hey, if you were a scientist, then nobody could argue with what you're about to say. You know, on the other hand, is this very derogatory, but hey, let me tell you how the world really is since, you know, science hasn't figured it out yet. Uh, so I, I don't know ultimately what, you know, the effect subtly is on the population when you hear people say that over and over and over again. Uh, But it it makes me wonder whether a lot of scientists then, when they get in front of the media, respond in a particular way, knowing that this kind of stereotype is out there. Well, I'll tell you a short anecdote. I was talking to a congressperson, a U.S. House of Representative, not more than a few weeks ago, and asked them about how science is portrayed inside the halls of Congress. And what they said was that no one doesn't believe in science in the House. You know, maybe there's like one or two exceptions, but far and away, everyone is sort of committed, especially when it comes to stuff like the NIH and the NSF. But they have political agendas, and those don't always poll the best. And they can use the uncertainty in science to to their advantage when they're talking through the media. And that really means that we need to be more sophisticated about understanding the motives of these politicians when they talk about science more than anything else. I mean, hearing a representative say like, yeah, they're all really behind science. They just don't always say that. Gave me at least some monicum of comfort that there is still some sense and sensibility in the uh, political system. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson. And this episode was brought to you by Crazy Good Turns. Crazy Good Turns is a new podcast that celebrates people who do crazy good turns for others. This week, meet Daryl Hammond, founder of Kaboom, a nonprofit dedicated to fun, which builds playgrounds in underserved and underprivileged communities. Check it out at crazygoodturns.org slash minds or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes or any other podcasting app. 
And this week's episode is brought to you by Audible with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and so much more. You'll find what you're looking for at audible.com. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by signing up at audible.com slash minds. That's audible.com slash minds. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by our own pollster, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer, Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Andre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.